Hey, Trumpcast listeners, just a quick message before we start today's show. I want to let you know that starting the week of September 10th, we're going to be making some episodes of Trumpcast available only to members of Slate Plus. Now, we've talked about Slate Plus on here before. It's our membership program where members get a luxe five-star treatment already receiving ad-free versions of Trumpcast and our other podcasts. But now our members will be receiving every fourth episode of Trumpcast in its entirety. We love our advertisers, but we want more of our revenue to come from you, the people who listen to the show, care about it, and now we're asking you to support it. We think that if you care about journalism, you should help it thrive. And that's especially true with a show like Trumpcast, which doesn't pull any punches. So again, starting the week of September 10th, every fourth episode of Trumpcast will be for Slate Plus members only. If you want to hear every episode of our show and you're not a Slate Plus member, sign up now at slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. It's just $35 for your first year and you'll get no ads and more content from other Slate shows, including Slow Burn and The Political Gab Fest. And of course, you'll be supporting the work we do at Slate every day. So don't miss out. Sign up now at slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. One more time, that's Slate dot com slash Trumpcast plus. And now let's get to the show. Now, the feds referred to Weisselberg as executive one in the Michael Cohen court documents. He's been with Trump through bankruptcies, uh, through the reality TV saga, through all of his booms and busts. Cooperation tends to breed more cooperation. How much do you think he actually knew about the Trump world? I mean, if you had to quantify, yeah, pretty much everything. Mm. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So do you all remember back in 2017 when Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina was just walking along, being sane, loving his senator buddies, John McCain and Jeff Sessions? And then one morning last October, just after Senator Bob Corker tweeted that Trump belonged in adult daycare, Graham announced he was going to play golf with Trump. And when he came back, he tweeted this. Really enjoyed a round of golf with President at real Donald Trump today. President Trump shot a 73 in windy and wet conditions. Now, something happened in windy and wet conditions, and it wasn't, as I'm told by golfer friends and the whole Internet, a 73. Since then, Graham has done an about face on his early saber rattling about what a kook Trump is. And now if he moves on Sessions and Mueller, it will cost him the presidency. Instead, Graham began saying Trump is very definitely not a kook. And Graham supported Trump's efforts at, quote, diplomacy with North Korea and Russia. And then came the flags. Yesterday, Trump briefly refused to keep a flag over the White House at half-mast in honor of John McCain, who died Sunday. This kicked up the old McCain-Trump-Graham love triangle again. Graham is clearly grieving for his old friend, but he still can't bring himself to say a word against Trump, who has desecrated McCain's memory already. So today, Graham asked that the country move on from Trump's contemptuous treatment of the late senator, which was only yesterday. We always have to move on with these Trump defenders. Basically, Graham seems very under the Manchurian candidate spell. And today he's also saying that the relationship between Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump is beyond repair and further saying that Sessions should be out. Now, a year ago, he said that if Trump fired Sessions, it would be, quote, the beginning of the end of Trump's presidency. What happened on the golf course? Some say bribes. Some say blackmail. 
And some optimists say that Graham, who has also recently defended the Mueller investigation, is playing some kind of longer game, keeping feathers unruffled among the Republican Party faithful, while Mueller and ideally a Democrat-led impeachment eases Trump out. If I could have anyone on this show, it would be the enigmatic Lindsey Graham. But my close second choice would be today's guest, Ellie Honig. He's here today to talk about the SDNY's closing in on the Trump Organization, and in particular, the immunity deal it secured with the Trump Organization's CFO, Alan Wesselberg. So that's coming up. But first, we've had two years of Trump observers calling attention to Trump's very, very subtle, gentle, whisper-thin racism, like when he referred to shithole countries or said there were very fine people on both sides of Charlottesville, or when he called Mexicans rapists. He's just a tender, nuanced racist. And we all agreed to call those utterances dog whistles because only some fine connoisseur people could hear them. But maybe, maybe, maybe it's time to retire the dog whistle notion. Welcome to Whistles, Whistles, Whistles. My name is Monica. Let me know if I can help you find anything while you're browsing around. Oh, hey, Monica. Yeah, I'm actually here to make a return. Oh, I can help you with that. Yeah, I just want to return this dog whistle. Okay, well, definitely. Can I ask, is there anything wrong with the dog whistle? Oh, no, not at all. It works. Actually, it works really, really well. Oh, good. Um, I just don't feel the need to use it anymore. Yeah, I've been using it for years, and I just want to upgrade to a uh, real whistle. Okay, feeling more bold, huh? Yeah, super emboldened. I really just don't feel any shame. Um, um, here, this is this is a, a very large whistle. can be heard by everybody at any time. What, how, how do you think this might work for you? Yeah, let, me, let me give it a shot. Ooh, that sounds a little too much like a ref whistle. It reminds mm. me of the NFL. It's kind of triggering for me. Not a big fan. You yeah. got anything else? Um, yeah, well, we've got this line right here. Oh, yeah. Here, I'll try it. Yeah, it kind of bums me out. Yeah. Well, gosh, you could just skip the whistle altogether and go for a bullhorn. <laughs> yeah. But you got one of those? Sure thing. How about this one right here? Wow. Yeah, this is great. So does this run on batteries or? No, it runs on privilege. Oh, I've got tons of that. Today's sketch, Whistles, 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 was improvised in our Brooklyn studio by Kate James and Asher Perlman. Just one last thing before we jump into the interview. We're thrilled to announce Slate Day, a live podcast experience produced in connection with the Texas Tribune Festival. Slate Day will take place at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin, Texas on Saturday, September 29th. Attendees will experience their favorite political podcasts live and will have unique opportunities to mingle with the hosts and fellow fans during our cocktail party. This is an intimate venue with limited seating. So get your tickets today. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and information. And if you want to make a weekend of it, the Texas Tribune is offering $100 off festival badges to Slate Day ticket holders. We'll have a link on our event page to learn more about the festival. Again, that's slate.com slash live. Joining me on the line is Ellie Honig. He's a former federal prosecutor in the SDNY and, among other things, has prosecuted members and associates of the Gambino and Genovese crime families. He's now at Rutgers. Ellie, thank you for joining me on Trumpcast. 
Thanks, Virginia. Happy to be with you. And especially we now have this auspicious and immensely interesting news that Alan Weisselberg, the chief financial officer of the Trump organization, has been granted immunity in a deal with the Southern District of New York, which you know very well. Um, Well, I'm remembering that early on, as reported in Fire and Fury, Trump was terrified about the Comey prosecution, not because of that Russia thing, but lest it touch his business and his kids. So this is the thing that Trump has been fearing all along. And the immune, the deal with Weisselberg is as close to the white hot center as, of the Trump org as, as we can imagine. So what does this mean? What does crisis mean for Trump? It's big. It's big. Like you said, Weisselberg has all the books. And one thing that seems to be common about all the, all the crimes or potential crimes that are running through the Trump organization is they're all run through the books. I mean, every dollar that gets paid in hush money runs through those books. Every dollar that they're, you know, where they're potentially trying to evade taxation runs through those books. And so Weisselberg sounds like the guy who can really sort of read the Rosetta Stone for the prosecutors. Now, you mentioned immunity, and I think it's important that people understand immunity because it's not quite the same thing as, as what, what we at the Southern District would know as, as a full-blown cooperating witness. Okay. Um, the way immunity comes about is, first of all, the Southern District wants information from a witness. So you subpoena that person. That person then typically takes the fifth. And I would presume that's what Weisselberg did here, meaning they have some level of criminal exposure and they want to remain silent, which is their right constitutionally. Then the sort of counter move to that counter move is it's back in the prosecutor's court and the prosecutor then can seek immunity. And, and that's a sort of laborious process as a prosecutor. You have to fill out all these forms. You have to send it down to Maine Justice in D.C. Then when you get it back, you have to take it over to a judge who reviews it and approves it. So uh, what it tells me is the Southern District, A, wants that information from Weisselberg and, is, and, and B, is sort of willing to pay for it, not monetarily, but give him a significant benefit in exchange for it. And that so that immunity applies to just this grand jury testimony to allow him to prevent him from taking the fifth um, or, yeah, to, or yeah, allow him, speaking, yes. give him immunity from self-incrimination. But why that's that seems such a limited purpose for this immunity. And, and yet people still say this opens the door to the prosecution of the whole Trump organization. How does that work? I mean, what do they think he might have said in this small space that um, that was worth all this? Yeah, one of the big questions that on a lot of people's mind is how broad is this immunity? Uh, it, it's been reported various ways. It was limited just to Michael Cohen or it was limited just to the campaign finance. We don't know that. We can't know that at this point. There, there may be documentation that gets released on that later. But, but I'll tell you this. Based on my experience as a prosecutor, you can expand and change the contours of immunity almost as needed. What, mm. what often happens is you'll immunize a witness on topic A, and then you realize you're starting to bleed over to topic B. And you'll just say on the record, if you're in the grand jury, you'll just say, I'm representing to you here that you're covered by the same immunity agreement that you already have in place. It's almost just a gentleman's agreement, but, but it's binding. And if necessary, if, 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 if things get hyper-technical, the prosecutor can always go back to justice and repeat the process that I just laid out and say, hey, I need to expand the scope of this immunity. Um, and what's important to note, one important thing about immunity is once immunity is granted the witness, in this case, Weisselberg, he has no choice. He can no longer take the Fifth Amendment. Mm. So his only choices are testify, or refuse to testify, which is contempt, and then you're going to jail. And I don't think anyone's talking about that for this guy. So he's going to have to testify. So uh, Weisselberg is in a strange territory that's not that's not exactly analogous to Cohen's territory. Um, does does Trump see Weisselberg now as a full on rat, or does it depend on what he says? 
Oh, I'm, I'm sure Trump sees him as a rat. Uh, I mean, maybe Trump, I mean, Trump, it doesn't take a lot for Trump to label someone a rat, which, which I find hugely problematic for many reasons that we can go into. Well, actually, let's, um, let's go into those because, sure. it, it, because, you know, when Don Jr. hired Alan Fuderfoss as his defense attorney, who you must have crossed swords with sometime along yeah, the way. Absolutely. Yeah, mob, yep. defend, mob defense attorney. And then all this language of Al Capone and then the rats and so on. I mean, it's as though... You know, Trump knows that this is organized crime we're talking about. It, it really is. And, and somehow he's got the language really pretty well. Um, I mean, he grew up in New York, you know, and he's from here. So I don't I don't know who he hangs out with. I don't know if he watches movies, but he's got the lingo down pretty good. I mean, you know, he basically just praised Manafort for being what, what the mob guys would call a stand up guy. Right. He, he didn't flip, although maybe there's some question about that. But but he didn't flip and he took he went to trial and he's going to take a sentence. He's going to remain quiet that they call that a stand up guy. But the notion of rats and, and, and Trump went on his thing last week where he kept talking about flippers, which is sort of a weird way to phrase it, but he's essentially attacking cooperating witnesses, which is lunacy. For a guy who tries to to portray himself as a law and order president to say that maybe we should make it illegal for people to cooperate, is it just shows a complete disregard for the way law enforcement works, the way our, our system works for the history of the Department of Justice. Look back at the history of, the, of DOJ. Mm-hmm. The biggest, most important cases that DOJ has made in its history have relied in large part on cooperating witnesses. You can go from John Gotti Sr. here in New York. Timothy McVeigh, they used cooperating witnesses. The embassy bombings in Africa in 1998, we used cooperating witnesses. Uh, Enron, WorldCom, the biggest frauds we've had, CEOs have all been relying on cooperating Cooperating witnesses. So I don't think it's any wonder that Donald Trump hates cooperating witnesses because they are the biggest threat to anyone who's the leader of a closed criminal organization. Uh, but for him to be saying publicly uh, that there's something wrong with cooperating is, is, is almost treasonous. I mean, he, he, he clearly, when he talks about law and order, he's talking about there's like it's just we've been doing Trump guys too long to hold back from saying this. He's talking about racist policy. He's talking about his racist idea of where crime comes from, from illegal immigrants and so forth. Yeah. He's not talking about any of the other prosecutions that are so alive today. And that, you know, right before the show, you and I were talking about the n- new interest of students in Intel, counterterrorism in um, uh, mafia prosecutions and white collar crime, which, um, you know, as we're all learning, you know, day by day here have been such a determiner of um, how power is organized in the in, in the United States in the last couple of decades while while we've been worrying about the non-crimes committed by asylum seekers. <laughs> you know, it's just... Yeah, I- and, and to pick up on that, I mean, th- this case sort of brings together, you know, we, we tend to have these topics or, or, of, of crime, right? Any prosecutor's office is usually organized along, well, you have your white-collar group, you have your corruption group, you have your violent crime group, you have your organized crime group or bureau. Th- somehow this case touches on all of them at once, mm-hmm. um, including the intel angle, as you said. But, you know, you also referenced some of, the, some of the policies that we're seeing out of Trump and DOJ and some of the, the, the dog whistle language that's been using. But, you know, Trump wants to talk tough about about, oh, I'm going to bring down MS-13. Guess what? You're not going to really get far without cooperating witnesses. I've done street gang cases. You're not going to get the decision makers and the top guys without flipping people up the, up the chain. That's how you do it. You get someone who's, you start with someone who's maybe, uh, you know, a henchman, someone who carries out acts of violence, a low-level guy or a drug runner, and you flip them and you move up the chain. Um, I've done those type of cooperators. So if Trump 
and Sessions say they're serious about protecting these people from MS-13, and, and it is a threat. It is a real threat. I think it's been, it's been used for other purposes, but it is a threat. They're not serious if, if, if they want to outlaw cooperators. Do you think that, that violent crime, that there's an element of violent crime here? I mean, I, I, this may call for speculation, as they say, but, you know, when mm-hmm. um, Stormy Daniels testified that Cohen had sent it, or she thought Cohen may have sent around some kind of muscle to threaten her, it, it sort of veers into, I, I don't know, I think there's always some kind of violence in the edges. Well, I think the way I would put it is there's sort of an air of menace about yeah. a lot of this. Uh, and and I, yeah, I don't know that Stormy Daniels was ever threatened with, will break your legs. Um, but I, you could put yourself, you know, I don't, put yourself in Stormy Daniels' situation to the extent you can. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you can understand. I mean, if lawyers are threatening her and powerful lawyers aligned with powerful people are threatening her, you know, that could be the threat of overwhelming lawsuits. That could be the threat of smearing her in public. Um, these people have shown over and over that they're willing to play dirty. And I think it's it, it's got to be awfully intimidating for some of the sort of regular folks who've been caught up in this. So, yeah, I would say there's a, definitely an air of menace and threat about all of this. So um, SDNY has done a, a lot of these kind of complicated chess games. And, and there are certainly people on Mueller's team that ha- that have prosecuted the crimes that you referenced before. There's an, a figure from the Enron case. There's certainly mob prosecutors in there that you've worked with. But um, this time, the SDNY's notoriously uh, aggressive prosecutorial tactics also have to take into account a whole different set of strategies surrounding pardonable offenses at the federal mm. level. Um, yep. So, you know, one of the, I'm sure you all, every, you probably game this out every night as you fall asleep like so many of us do but what if you know i noah feldman has said or written that um if trump thinks he's going to walk out in handcuffs and not walk out to afford like pardon so if he resigns and then he's instantly mm-hmm. um being prosecuted under the sdny that might keep him in office for longer um he, he might be unwilling to resign you know, if it's if he's damned, if he doesn't, damned, if he doesn't, he's going to get impeached in office, but he's going to be um, arrested um, right. if he leaves. Um, does that figure into SDNY's calculations? Should well, it? It's, it's such an it's such an interesting question. You're right. I actually I'll admit I do kind of sit there sometimes <laughs> thinking about these yeah. things. Um, I don't think he'll resign. First of all, I don't think his ego will ever permit that. Um, you know, obviously, there's a very interesting constitutional question of can the president pardon himself? Obviously, it's never been tested. I think this president would certainly try it if, if he was in that situation that you're talking about of being walked out of the White House with 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 agents waiting with handcuffs. Uh, why not try it? Right. The worst case scenario is the court disagrees, but there, there's no real downside beyond that. I also think it's interesting to think about the potential pardons of Paul Manafort or or others down the line. And I think there's an awful lot of indicators that the president intends to, to pardon Paul Manafort. I'm sure it's, it's so apparent that if he could have gotten away with it, he would have already done it. Um, and, and my theory is, A, he, he just doesn't he just wants to undermine anything that Mueller is doing. And B, I think he wants to take away any possibility or, or minimize the possibility that Manafort flips. And and. I have this theory that the president's been kind of inadvertently, perhaps, setting a gr- the groundwork to eventually pardon Manafort with these tweets. He started tweeting out a few weeks before the trial, oh, poor Paul, he's such a good good man. This is sad. Footnote, this is a guy who stole millions of dollars from the federal government by, through tax evasion. But uh, So it's pretty remarkable for a president to be saying that. But I think the reason he's doing that is because if he pardons Manafort and a prosecutor could prove that he pardoned Manafort in order to prevent him from cooperating or keeping, keep himself 
silence, I think there's a decent case for obstruction of justice there. But this, these tweets and these public statements enable Trump to say, no, that's not why I did it. I just did it because I felt bad for him. I felt it was an unjust prosecution. That's, that's what pardons are for. You may not agree with me. You may think it was just, but I think it was unjust. And, and Obama and Clinton and Bush and everybody has used the pardon power. So that's all I'm doing here. So I think it's quite likely that at some point he pardons Manafort. I think there's an interesting timing question. I think he's unlikely to do it before midterms because it would cause such a, such a fury, uh, rightly so. But uh, there's a lot of angles to that as well. So, all right, now sensitive territory. I don't know if you've seen Ross Garber. He's an impeachment lawyer, now sort of turned analyst. He's been on the show before, one of very few impeachment lawyers. And he uh, he pushed back on the sacred cow. You know, I'm talking about Preet Bharara on Twitter the other day saying SDNY is overreaching. Now, I love it when you guys flex your muscles and say that your whole your juris the territory of the United the planet Earth is the jurisdiction of SDNY. <laughs> but <laughs> there have to be consequences to that kind of chest beating. And, you know, if the New York attorney general ends up making the sole decisions about what happens with this presidency. I, I mean, <laughs> like words defy me. Like, how how did we get here? And is there right. some, is there some, let's say this, how about, is there some case to be made for SDNY taking um, marching orders from the Department of Justice and Mueller instead of from its own sense of Godlike, godlike arrogance. <laughs> so, first of all, I will, as a SDNY alum, I will cop guilty to all of that that you just said. We do have a a very strong view of our own sovereignty. They call us the sovereign district of New York and our own our own independence, and we take a lot of pride in that. And indeed, Preet is correct as he often is, always is. I will say uh, <laughs> that we, we. I mean, come on. I'm, I'm you know, a you said guy. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to liken you to the mob, but I'm not going to not liken you guys to the mob. <laughs> no, people say that. And we, we kind of take a little bit of pride in it, I think, in the good way. And it, it is correct that we see our jurisdiction as, as the whole world. Um, I once did a three-month trial where the whole basis for having it in the Southern District of New York is one guy made one phone call from a payphone. This was in the old days in Manhattan from a, from a 212. And that one phone call, we took the whole case in here, even though nothing else over a three-month trial happened here. <laughs> oh so we do have a very broad view of our own powers. But remember, Southern District is part of the United States Department of Justice. Even we yeah. will not contest that. And, and to me, wherever the evidence comes, whether it leads to impeachment or, or indictment of the president or others, whoever generates the evidence, it should be in play. I, I don't think consequences should be limited to only evidence that comes from a certain prosecutor. Mm. Um, and there has been some question about, well, to what extent, let's say Cohen flips for the Southern District. It doesn't appear to be in the cards right now, but let's say he does, or let's say Weisselberg has dynamic information that, that overlaps with Mueller. Would that be shared? My, my belief is absolutely. I, I, there's no mm-hmm. legal barrier to the Southern District, or for that matter, state authorities, the New York Attorney General or the District Attorney of New York calling up a federal authority. Good law enforcement agencies share information, share evidence all the time. There's no legal uh, impediment to it. In fact, it's it's what law enforcement agencies should be doing. So if there is a silver bullet, it shouldn't matter where it comes from. Um, you know, you, I don't think you can impeach a president based on a state charge. I think that would be really difficult to do. But whoever discovers the conduct, it's going to be the conduct that leads to impeachment. So what, um, all right, back to this gaming with the pardon, the pardon issue. So let's say that President Pence or 
<laughs> if Pence is in trouble and Congress flips, President Pelosi, we all know we're thinking about it, <laughs> um, just calls up the new New York AG. And I just have to add here out of hometown pride that I went to a small high school in New Hampshire and not one, but two alumni of my high school are in the running to be New York AG. One of them, Zephyr Teachout, who was yep, just I met her the other day. Yep. Yes, yes. From a friend of mine from high school. The other one is Sean Maloney. Right. So let's say it goes to, so let's say it's Zephyr Teachout because just because there are not enough subplots here, we also had an attorney general removed for choking his girlfriends. That was Eric Schneiderman. So right. Zephyr Teachout get, gets this, you know, this falls into her lap. She's already said, you know, she will prosecute it with all the winds of heaven and earth. And um, she's told by some President Pence or President Pelosi or whoever, look, for the good of the country, she gets the Gerald Ford lecture. Like, we have to show mercy. It is not good for anyone, any of our allies, any of our people to see a president in supermax. And um, and we're going to, like, you know, implore you to drop this and and come to some kind of almost deal with us. Zephyr with her Hanover High marauder fighting spirit, has <laughs> not given any indication that she would cave into that. But that's the kind of conversation I'm talking about between um, the SDNY and 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 the and the and New York and and right. the federal government that that interests me. What do you think? So interesting. Okay. So first of all, if there ever is a President Pelosi, I want to do Fox News that day because it would just be fantastic. Um, to they, be just over watching there and see their the heads reactions. blow off their shoulders. I mean, you exactly. know that you know that if you just are staying up all night writing the fanfic about this, there is a possibility. <laughs> Also, President Hillary Clinton. <laughs> oh boy! Well, okay, that too. They can I, choose I anyone. Know. All right. Um, if you know, but but if it played out this way, and and I, I think you're going on on the sort of presumption here that a state charge would not be uh, susceptible to a federal pardon. Right. Uh, right. Yes. So. Look, if, if, I'm just trying to put myself in that situation. I think that's actually a fairly reasonable request if it were to come through from a successor president to say, let's just move on. I do think I do think the lesson that came out of uh, out of the Nixon and for, you know, the Ford pardon of Nixon is a good one, that, that there is a time for reconciliation and, and moving on uh, and sort of moving on with business. But, you know, it's not quite a settled question to me. And I think to others smarter than me that it could be that a federal pardon actually get somebody out of a state charge, especially here in New York. You have to sort of look at the double jeopardy rules. And and there's some talk now about legislation in New York to toughen up the double jeopardy rules because, you know, um, so I, I wait, just, sorry, back up. What do you mean double jeopardy? So double jeopardy is, is the is the notion that a person has already been essentially tried and either convicted or acquitted on an offense. And it means mm-hmm. you can't charge that same offense a second time in a different court or in the same court. It's one of the core notions of, of the Constitution. And so there's an argument out there that let's say Donald Trump uh, was was charged with crime X and then and then pardoned for it by a successor president. Could the New York State AG then try then charge Trump for the same crime for X? I think there's a pretty good argument that. Uh, double jeopardy would attach, uh, that a pardon is essentially the same thing as a conviction or an acquittal. Mm. It's a final judgment on a case. And therefore, under New York state law, you couldn't charge them with the same thing because it would be double jeopardy. Mm. Now, that's going to sort of vary uh, state by state based on the state double jeopardy laws. I know from my experience in New Jersey, that double jeopardy laws are very broad and very favorable to a defendant. Uh, so I guess the bottom line takeaway is, 
it's not clear to me that you could still bring a state charge in New York or New Jersey or other states um, following a pardon. Interesting. So <clears throat> let's let's like go back a little bit to Weisselberg and the nature of what those crimes themselves might be. You and Mimi Roca and virtually everyone looking at it says, you know, Weisselberg is the key to that unlocks a thousand doors and is, you know, knows where all the bodies are buried and so forth. And you refer to what he has or might have as, quote, dynamic information. What do you mean by dynamic information? And what, you know, you, you, you mentioned money laundering, but, but tell me what else he might know. So, well, let's start with I think with what I think we we probably do know, which is which is the payoffs, uh, the hush money payoffs, and I think it's pretty clear at this point that that does constitute a crime if those payoffs were designed to to protect the president in connection with a campaign in an election. And I, I don't think there's much question that that is a crime. I know some people out there are saying not even a crime. I know the president saying not even a crime, but Department of Justice disagrees uh, in taking Michael Cohen's plea, and, and Judge William Pauley, who took Michael Cohen's plea, also uh, disagrees. And, and thinks it is a crime. Uh, judges don't just accept guilty pleas. I've seen judges uh, hear a defendant out and say, that's not a crime. I'm not accepting your plea. Judge Pauly, who's very careful, very sharp, heard out Michael Cohen and said that is a federal crime. So I think, I think Wesselberg will give further information about the potential campaign finance violations that arise out of payments of, of hush money to women or who, whoever else Trump has harmed or, or hurt. And there may well be others. So that's another area I would be asking Wesselberg about. The rest of it is more theoretical, but I would certainly, if, if, I, was, if I had Wesselberg in a grand jury room, the first thing I would focus on is tax evasion. I would just look, look at what mm-hmm. Paul Manafort was just convicted yeah. of. He, he was funneling money that he made through foreign bank accounts to avoid having to pay taxes. To me, what are the chances that Trump or the Trump organization was doing that, given all their overseas holdings, all their overseas business, given Trump's refusal to, re- to release his tax returns? I would That would be the first area I would go into with Wesselberg. And again, I'm just sort of speculating here. Um, but but I would want to go right there. Um, and I'd also want to know about uh, any bank frauds out there. You know, another thing we saw from Manafort is some of these rich guys or phony rich guys live above their means. And what that causes them to do is then go and take out enormous bank loans under false pretenses. You overstate how much equity you have in a property, uh, that kind of thing. And you mislead a bank into giving you a huge loan. So I'd want to cover that with Wesselberg as well. I love it. I love when like just middle-class Joes like you and me are like, they live above their means. Sometimes they, they take do. loans they can't afford. Um, there's like, this like strange like prudishness around the finance is here where you just look and think like you shouldn't have bought that ostrich leather well, jacket say, Paul Manafort you had a lot of debt we're both just jealous of his wardrobe <laughs> we are totally jealous of his wardrobe okay another <laughs> sensitive question about SDNY Wesselberg um, has worked for the Trump organization since the 70s I don't know anything about anything but I feel like I could have looked at all the cash purchases in Trump Tower and all the scurvy like Felix Saders and Paul Manafort's in the fringes of the of the of Trump Tower and said there's something fishy here why what took you guys so long <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, look, prosecutors, even the best prosecutors' offices, can only really address a fraction of the crime that's out there, and and different things bring it to our attention. Sometimes it's a high-profile event like this, like this entire presidency. Yeah. So uh, I can't really answer that. But uh, uh, keep in mind that as good as the Southern District is, and the New York AG and the DA of, of New York is, there there usually needs to be some impetus for us to focus on a particular crime. We can't just cover the entire universe and just sort of suspecting someone. Sh- you know. 
know, and that can also be someone flips or you get a new informant or an agent gets onto something or there's a shady deal that becomes public. And I will say, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't think there's any, any shame in saying sometimes we do pick up cases from the media. Sometimes we'll read about something in the papers and say, oh, we got to follow up on that. And sometimes reporters even call us and say, hey, I have a tip for you. I've, I've made great cases that, that came in from reporters. So uh, there's all different impetuses out there. But even with that, you can't possibly cover every single crime known to man. And sometimes you need something to break before, before you have your in. And there, this, the speculation that Trump, well, like, the fact that Trump cooperated himself in Atlantic City <laughs> in the, what, in the 80s um, against yes. the Italian mafia, which you know something about. Um, he, he's, do you think it's ridiculous to think that he's been a confidential human source all this time? That he, there's been no. a little, Oh, okay. I think it's quite possible. I think it's quite possible. A lot of, a lot of. I mean, you know, well, the the, the famous pop culture example is is, uh, is from The Sopranos, right? Where he he sort of at one point ends up uh, giving information over to the other side, and and they sort of over to the feds, and and he says something like, "Everyone does this." Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of smart maneuverers and 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 schemers and players, whether they're mob bosses or, or Trump, try to play it both ways and go to the FBI selectively when it helps them when they have when they have an ends to meet, and and the FBI is, of course, fully aware of that and, and aware that a lot of what we call CIs, confidential informants, have their own agendas. So you have, that's why you have to vet the information that comes in. So, um, yeah, I mean, a, again, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if, if Trump had done that in the past. What are we, you, you are now working with students who are interested in um, white collar crime. I mean, wh- I, when the Panama Papers dropped and then the Paradise Papers, or was it the reverse, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I mean, I just, I, I, I like, and we've had Bill Browder on the show many times talking about this just illegitimate economy that increasingly seems to make the world go round. Like, if there's a kind of new Cold War, it might be between legitimate economies and banks and illegitimate economies, which... Um, <laughs> seem quite yeah, it, robust. <laughs> it, it's an interesting development. And again, just look at the Manafort case. It, it's mind-boggling. This, the, the amount of money this guy made, you know, you know, tens of millions of dollars from being some sort of political advisor to these pro-Russian Ukrainian politicians. And then he takes that money and he funnels it through bank accounts in, in Cyprus and then has these wire transfers direct to these retailers that I've never even heard of. Um, and it's sort of this whole shadow economy. And I think as, of course, as the world you know, continues to become more globalized, I think we'll see more and more of this. And prosecutors and law enforcement are going to have to evolve and keep up with it. Um, thank you so, so much for being here, Ellie. This is um, really useful. And we'll, we'll have you back as, the, um, as we proceed closer to the checkmate. My pleasure. Anytime. And that's the show for today. Kate James and Asher Perlman improvised the sketch Whistles, Whistles, Whistles in our Brooklyn studio. Jason DeLeon is Trumpcast producer. And could you follow us on Twitter? We're at RealTrumpCast. That's at RealTrumpCast for all things about the show. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>